When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. On the morning of February 4th, 2015, 18-year-old Sarah Graham didn't show up for her morning shift at Walmart in Pembroke, North Carolina. A few hours later, her van was found abandoned in a field halfway between Walmart and her home in Fairmont, North Carolina. There were no signs of struggle, and the doors were locked manually. Despite a thorough investigation, Sarah remains missing, and authorities are still searching for her. On June 18th, 2020, more than 1,000 miles away from North Carolina, 22-year-old Caitlin Kelly was reported missing from Shawano, Wisconsin. No one had seen or heard from her since around 3 a.m. on June 17th. An extensive search for Caitlin began, but tragically, almost a year later, her remains were discovered. While no official cause or manner of death has been revealed, many sources suggest that Caitlin was a homicide victim. Investigators continue looking into the circumstances surrounding her disappearance and her death. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective. Each week I'll be covering an unsolved case in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any tips, you can contact them directly and maybe you can assist in solving a case. And if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you'd like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. Okay, so tonight's case, as you will probably notice, we are covering two different investigations. And normally, I wouldn't do that. I like to devote each case to one specific victim, Um, unless the the victims are connected in some way. We did it a few weeks ago with the the serial killer case where although the victims didn't necessarily know each other, it does appear they were all killed by the same person. So in that particular situation, it's it's more than uh, appropriate to cover them together because there may be similar 
uh, MOs within the the in different investigations that may lead us to the the suspect, the killer, um, so that we could solve the case. That is not one of those situations tonight. As you saw in the teaser, um, these two victims were over a thousand miles away from each other and not really in the same time period. But the reason I'm covering them together uh, will make sense in a second. As you will see tonight, both Sarah Graham and Caitlin Kelly are both indigenous women and their stories have not received much media attention, although they have been covered on a couple podcasts. And when I first started Detective Perspective, the number one priority I had for the show was to give exposure to the cases that were more obscure uh, and, and maybe didn't get the attention they deserve, uh, to give a voice to the voiceless. And I've always felt this way about these particular types of victims, these types of cases, but I've also heard from you guys, both in the comments and in some of the, the DMs, and you've asked that I cover more cases like this. So again, although these cases aren't connected they, they do share one unfortunate similarity, which is um, they haven't gotten the exposure they deserve, which is why tonight I'd like to shed light on both of their stories and give them the recognition they deserve. So with that out of the way, let's dive into this week's cases. Sarah Graham was born on April 1st, 1996. And while Sarah was a member of the Lumbee tribe, she did not live in the Lumbee territory when she was growing up. According to the Red Justice podcast, Sarah's parents separated when she was young. Her mother then raised Sarah and her brother in Texas. This meant that Sarah didn't have much contact with her dad's side of the family until she was a teenager. After the separation, Sarah's dad, Hubert Graham, married a woman named Connie. She had at least one son who became Sarah's stepbrother. Hubert worked as a sergeant at the Robeson County Sheriff's Office, and Connie also worked there as a sheriff's deputy. In the spring of 2014, Sarah graduated from high school. That fall, she moved from Texas to Fairmont, North Carolina, so she could live with Hubert and Connie. After her move to North Carolina, Sarah seemed to be doing well. Federal officials later mentioned that she was happy and making friends. She was described as, quote, shy until you got to know her and, quote, the kindest, sweetest person. Sarah found a job at the Walmart in Pembroke, North Carolina. She was scheduled to work there at 7 a.m. on February 4, 2015. However, she didn't show up for work that morning. At 12.15 p.m. that afternoon, someone called the Robeson County Sheriff's Office to report a Chevy Astro van parked in the wheat field on East McDonald Road near Chicken Road in Fairmont. The person who saw the van mentioned that they didn't spot anyone in or around the vehicle. When the police arrived to check it out, they didn't find any damage to the van or signs of struggle nearby, like footprints or broken ground. Furthermore, the van's doors were locked manually with a key. The Robinson County Sheriff later told WRAL, quote, The vehicle looked like it just pulled up there and parked. The police checked the license plate and found out that the van belonged to Sarah's dad, Hubert. They reached out to Sarah's family and learned that they had no idea she was even missing. They thought she had been at work all morning. The family explained that on the night of February 3rd, Sarah and her dad spent the night watching TV together. The next morning at 6.30 a.m., Sarah left her home in Fairmont and started driving to her job in Pembroke, which was about a 20-minute drive away. She was supposed to start work at 7 a.m., but she never showed up. The police determined that the van was found abandoned four miles away from Sarah's house, which was also about halfway between her home and Walmart. After discovering the van and finding out that Sarah hadn't gone to work, 50 officers from different law enforcement agencies, including the county sheriffs, Fayetteville police, canine officers, and the FBI were sent to look around the area where the van was located. 
They were trying to find signs of Sarah or anyone who might have seen or heard from her. They also used helicopters from the State Highway Patrol to search a nearby wooded area as well. When Sarah wasn't located, authorities set up a command post and the search for Sarah continued with multiple agencies. They kept looking into the fields and wooded spots around Robinson County, but there were no signs of Sarah anywhere. The county sheriff told WRAL News that investigators had no reason to believe that Sarah ran away from home. He said, quote, There's been no trouble with her dad or stepmother. Everything was going good. It's not like her to be doing, very unlike her to do this. Sarah's great uncle further said Sarah was a friendly person who used to text her friends all day. She was known to stay out of trouble, and her disappearance was very unusual. On February 10th, Hubert told WMBF that he was lost, and he had no idea how to deal with the situation. He explained that Sarah's disappearance happened suddenly. One night they were watching TV together, and the next morning, she vanished on her way to work. He said, quote, I can't even describe it. It's kind of like a daze. Days go by and you're constantly questioning and asking if there's something else I can do. He also mentioned that he had stepped back from the investigation because he knew he couldn't control his emotions. Hubert said at this point he didn't care where Sarah was or who she was with. He just wanted to hear that she was safe. A week after Sarah's disappearance, over 140 volunteers searched the area where her van was found. They also scoured the area between her house and the Walmart where she worked, but they found no sign of her anywhere. Investigators also looked into Sarah's cell phone records and her computer. However, they didn't reveal any new information. Now, I want to weigh in here real quick. From what I've gathered and from what our research has gathered, yes, there's been no information from either the cell phone data or her browser history or her, or her chat room history, whatever she was doing online. But I do always question this and not in a bad way either. Um, are they only saying that because they don't want to release all that information to pub to the public because it is an active investigation? That's possible. But it seems like from what I can tell, they've been pretty forthright with everything. So more than likely what they're saying is true. Although I do always caution you guys to read between the lines when we hear from law enforcement and they give statements, you know, what are they not saying here? Unfortunately, uh, what we may have is a situation where they're being honest with us and they really didn't get any new information from her computer records or her phone records. Now in March, the FBI officially joined the investigation and began sharing the missing person poster. According to the Robinsonian, sightings started coming in from different states like Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee, but none of them led to Sarah. In late March of 2015, as the investigation continued, Sarah's stepmother, Connie, was fired from her job as a sheriff's deputy. Of course, many people wondered if this termination had anything to do with Sarah's disappearance. The sheriff soon told WMBF News that her termination was a, quote, personal matter. Okay, so I'm sure you're all looking at your screen right now or listening to this saying, Derek, personal matter. What the hell does that mean? The truth of the situation is I don't know. It could mean a gamut of things. Could it have something to do with Sarah's disappearance? Of course. But the spectrum of what that could mean is vast. It could be a situation where maybe they feel like Connie could be involved. That would be the extreme. Although I feel like if that were the case, there may be some mention of it. Or it could be a situation where Connie was using her access to different records and different utilities within the department. She was using that for personal reasons, like looking into Sarah's case. For example, if there were records within the internal databases that they had 
that were correspondence going back between the investigator and the FBI that she shouldn't have had access to, but was looking into and maybe printing out those documents for family members or friends. That is obviously a breach of her, of her responsibilities and that dissemination of personal or I guess private information within the police department could be a fireable offense. Now that those two scenarios aside, it could also, and, and maybe more than likely completely unrelated to Sarah's case at all. There's a possibility that Connie was just doing something that she shouldn't have been doing. And it may have been going on even before Sarah's disappearance. Um, but it wasn't caught until now, either way, I don't know if we'll ever know, but I do think the fact that the sheriff came out quickly after and said it was a quote personal matter may be an indication that that was his way of letting them know that this wasn't related to Sarah's disappearance and whatever was going on with Connie, it was something that didn't need to be disclosed to the public. Now, when asked if he could provide an update on Sarah's case, the sheriff said no, explaining that sharing specific details could harm the investigation's integrity and wouldn't be in Sarah's best interest. He said detectives from the Robinson County Sheriff's Office and the FBI were still working tirelessly to find Sarah. Now, after Connie's termination, WRAL reported that a source close to the investigation told them Connie was considered a suspect in the case. The source further claimed that Connie may be arrested and charged very soon. However, this is the only article that states this information, and because it came from an anonymous source and no arrests have ever been made, it's possible that this information was inaccurate. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier, where we don't really know what happened. This could have been someone just speculating and putting it out there as factual information. Um, but at this point, we, we just really don't know. Now, I will say this. According to the Red Justice podcast, after Connie was terminated, Hubert left the sheriff's office voluntarily and began working at a police station in another North Carolina town. So this this could play into this, right? Could this be a situation where Connie was, you know, Connie and Hubert were maybe conducting their own investigation uh, and as they shouldn't have been and maybe gathering files and looking at photos or reviewing witness statements when they shouldn't have been? Again, you, you don't want people who are personally connected to these cases working them. So they could have been doing things that they, they weren't supposed to be doing. And Hubert deciding to leave the department voluntarily may have been an indirect uh, showing of uh, support for Connie by leaving the sheriff's department that just fired her for something that, you know, in his eyes, wasn't necessarily the wrong thing to do. So after all this took place, the investigation into Sarah's disappearance continued. And on February 3rd, 2016, one year after Sarah went missing, the FBI and the Robinson County Sheriff's Office held a news conference. They offered a $5,000 reward for information about Sarah's case and asked anyone who saw the white van on the morning she disappeared to come forward. At that time, authorities revealed that they knew Sarah disappeared within a 15-minute window. They explained that witnesses saw the van in the field at 6.45 a.m., 15 minutes after Sarah left her house. Now, authorities further said they believe Sarah was a victim of foul play and hadn't disappeared on her own accord. The county sheriff mentioned that they, along with the FBI, continued to follow leads, but he didn't disclose what information they had received. He also said there were no persons of interest at this point. After the conference was over, authorities went to the Fairmont area where Sarah went missing, and they stopped motorists and distributed flyers about Sarah. And I think this was a way of letting the public know that although it had been over a year, 
they were still very active in this case and weren't above going out there and handing out flyers to vehicles as they pass by because you never know what could come from those leads that develop as these people are looking at these posters and being reminded of what happened to Sarah and the area in which it took place. You never know if that's going to trigger a memory. Now, around that same time, Sarah's father, Hubert, had an interview with WMBF News. He said, quote, I'm still sitting, waiting by the phone. When you get phone calls from strange numbers, you answer it. And for me, I'm expecting to hear someone say Sarah's here, or it be Sarah and her say she's all right. As the years passed, the investigation slowed down, and there were few updates shared with the public. In February of 2022, the FBI released a podcast episode about Sarah's disappearance. The agents in the podcast mentioned the investigators had followed many leads and talked to a lot of people. One agent said, quote, everything we've learned about Sarah tells us she did not take off on her own. She's responsible. She had a job at Walmart and was considered a dependable employee. The agent also shared that while most people they talked to had been helpful, they believed someone very close to her wasn't telling them everything they knew. The agent said they found a lot of evidence, but they were still needing the missing piece to bring Sarah home. That same month, Hubert talked to ABC 15 News. He expressed his frustration, saying he felt police weren't treating him well and weren't sharing much information with him. Hubert mentioned that there were people out there spreading rumors and making suggestions that he or his wife knew something or had something to do with Sarah's disappearance. He said that was as far from the truth as it could be, and he would be happy to answer any questions people had. Hubert further told ABC 15 News that he had chose not to actively take part in the investigation due to his background as a detective and law enforcement officer. He didn't want anyone to think he was trying to influence the investigation. However, Hubert did make some observations from the sidelines. He explained, quote, When we got her vehicle back, there wasn't no blood in the vehicle. Nothing in there. There wasn't no signs of no struggle. Or nothing that I've seen. When I went back home that evening, looked around the house, I didn't see nothing around the house that showed no signs or struggle or anything like that. I ain't gonna say I'm the best detective, but I am a seasoned detective. At that time, I was. Now, there's a few things I want to say here about this, and I'll, I'll save it for the end of the perspective, but it does all tie into Connie being fired, uh, Hubert's involvement with the investigation, and obviously the relationship between the actual investigators working the case and the family. Clearly, there's a disconnect there, and both sides are kind of throwing shade at each other. This is not good, obviously, so we, we have to really break this down and dissect it at the end of this. Now, on June 8th, 2023... FBI agents, along with the North Carolina Troopers Association K-9 unit, conducted a new search for Sarah. They didn't reveal why they were searching again or where they were looking. Then, five days later on June 13th, the FBI and the Robinson County Sheriff's Office conducted a state court-authorized search of Sarah's house. WMBF reported that investigators were also trying to figure out if Sarah had actually left the house on the morning of February 4th, 2015. At that time, the sheriff gave an update stating, quote, We will not stop. Many of the people who are working on Sarah's case have been working since day one to locate her. We are focused as ever to find Sarah and to bring her justice. I believe there are people in our community who have information that can help us. Please come forward. Unfortunately, this is the most recent update we have in Sarah's case. And as of today, she is still missing and investigators are still searching for answers. All right, so let's get into the perspective here. I said I wanted to come back to this, and I think most of you know where this one's going to go. Here's the problem with Sarah's case. 
the very small window from the time that she left her home to the time when her vehicle was seen, approximately 15 minutes. That's an issue because that makes it a very small window in which someone could have attacked her or someone could have picked her up without anybody seeing what had happened. And it wouldn't make sense based on the character that has kind of been created for Sarah by her peers that suggests she was a very responsible person and she really didn't have anything going on in her personal life that would suggest she would just run away for no reason at all or, or take off with someone without letting anyone in her, in her, her close circle know um, that she was going to do this. Um, as they said, they had cell phone records and browser history, computer history. Nothing suggested that there were transmissions or correspondences going on with another individual that maybe she would have met up with on that day. So it gets us back to the core of this investigation, right? Which is the the narrative that's been conveyed by the people close to her. And that's that she left her home to go to work. Well, as it was said at the end of the episode, how do we corroborate that? How do we confirm that's the case? How do we know if she ever left her home at all, at least on her own accord? And I'm not saying this to disrespect Sarah's family, her father, Hubert, or her stepmother, Connie. I don't know them. But that, as an investigator, is something we have to ask. If it doesn't make sense, the window itself, right, where something would have happened, like there wouldn't have been a reason for her to pull over. The vehicle appeared to be intact. Um, it wasn't like a blown-out tire. The, the, the vehicle was still functional, had gas. So there really wouldn't be a reason for her to stop on her way to work when she was only four miles away, right? She would have went to work and if there was something that needed to be addressed with the vehicle, more than likely she would have addressed it there. So she was still on time for work. The other thing which, which investigators have pointed out in this case is that the vehicle was locked uh, with a manual key. And, and that would suggest that Sarah left again on her own accord, like as she, as if she wanted to, as if she was going to take off. And, and go somewhere else with some with someone else. And that could be true, right? But it could also be true that her offender wanted to make it look that way, wanted to give the impression that she had ran away and hopefully investigators would go down that path and eventually give up on it thinking she was just a runaway and that whatever wherever she was or whoever she was with, that's what she wanted. Well, unfortunately for that offender or offenders, whoever they are, that didn't happen. And that's been very clear through the investigation by the Robinson County Sheriff's Department and also the FBI. They are convinced that someone in this community uh, knows what happened to her, that this wasn't just some transient passing through the area who saw Sarah on the side of the road, attacked her, kidnapped her, abducted her, and she was never heard from again. They believe that someone right in that their backyard is responsible for her disappearance and potentially her death. We don't know. And that's what it comes back to is the original story, which is from the family that everything was fine. She got up, she got ready for work, and that was the last time they ever saw her. And so, yeah, investigators are going to come back to that. And now with that in play, I'd given you the spectrum earlier, and I want to keep to that. I want to stay objective. There's a real possibility that Connie nor Hubert are involved with this, and maybe she was fired for something completely unrelated. But when you take into consideration everything else that we now have, there could still be a partial truth to what I was saying. 
she could have been looking into the investigation surrounding Sarah, but the, the reasoning behind her looking into it, it, it could range. It could vary. Was she looking into it because she's a concerned step-parent and she wants to find out as much information as she can on behalf of Hubert, you know, for Hubert? Or is she looking into it because she's a potential suspect and she wants to know if they're getting close to her or Hubert in the investigation? Is there something that's suggesting they may be coming after them at some point? That is also true. And listen, I don't think I'm going too far on a limb here. You had an FBI agent in a podcast say something about this, indicate that it was someone close to her who, who was not sharing all the information. That could be Hubert. That could be Connie. It could be both. Right. And obviously Hubert got wind of this, which is why he responded by saying, hey, law enforcement's not being nice to me. They're not cooperating with me. They're not sharing information with me. Well, if they consider Hubert a at minimum a person of interest or they think that Hubert's connected to a person who who is a person of interest or a potential suspect, they're not going to share information with him because that could get back to Connie or it might get back to him if he's if he's somehow involved. So where does that leave us today, right? I think we have to start at the foundation. On the surface, it sounds like everything was perfect at home. It sounds like Sarah, Connie, and Hubert were one big happy family. And so I think where investigators are are struggling is there's no motive. There's no reason why Hubert or Connie would hurt Sarah, at least that one that's known to them right now. So yes, I want this case to get as much exposure as it can because you never know who's going to hear or see this. But anyone from that community, if you were a friend of Sarah's or you knew someone who was a friend of Sarah's, it would be great to understand if Sarah felt the same way, that everything was happy in the home. Or did she ever share anything that would suggest there were problems either with Hubert or with Connie or with both? That may start investigators on a different path, if they can find a reason why Huber and or Connie would have a reason to hurt Sarah. And if that is the case, then they can start looking into the backgrounds of both Connie and Huber and see where they like to go and where they frequented it. And, and would there be somewhere that if one or both of them were responsible for Sarah's disappearance, what do their GPS coordinates say? What does their browser history say? Does it give any indications of where Sarah may be? And I will say we talked about this new spontaneous search that happened uh, not too long ago. Could that have been the result of some information that they found connected to Connie or Hubert? I don't know. And even though I'm talking a lot about Connie and Hubert, um, I think that's that's okay. You never want to build a house on a faulty foundation. And if they're, they're working on the premise that she left the house at 630 and that's not true, it's going to really impede the investigation. But with that all being said, I do want to remind everyone, let's not get tunnel vision. Yes, there are some questions surrounding the story the morning that Sarah left the house, but there is still a possibility that that is in fact what happened. And even though it was a small window, it was just enough time for someone to attack Sarah under a random set of circumstances. She could have been flagged down by someone. For all we know, she could have been pulled over by someone who appeared or presented themselves to be in law enforcement. Uh, there's, a, there's a few different scenarios that could have played out there. Although unlikely, it doesn't mean they're impossible. So I want us to continue to stay open to that. 
But finally, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the FBI and the Robinson County Sheriff's Department is still very active in this investigation. And although there hasn't been anything yet, I feel like they're on the cusp of something, or at least I'm hoping they are. And the fact that there's still search warrants being conducted, this case is still very much active, and I'm hoping in the near future we have an update. Uh, but just as a reminder for everyone out there who, who may know something or, or may know someone who knows something, Sarah was last seen on February 4th, 2015 in Fairmont, North Carolina. She is indigenous and stands about 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighs approximately 160 pounds. She has short, dark brown hair, brown eyes, and wears glasses. She was last seen wearing her blue Walmart employee vest. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Robinson County Sheriff's Office at 910-671-3100 or the FBI Charlotte Office at 704-671-6100 or you can submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. There is still a $5,000 reward available for information in Sarah's disappearance. Okay, so we got one case down. Now let's go over to Shawano, Wisconsin, where Caitlin Kelly went missing in June of 2020. Caitlin Letitia Kelly was born on December 18, 1997, to her parents, Daniel and Michelle. She was a member of the Mononymy tribe, and she enjoyed spending time with her family. After graduating high school, Caitlin worked at the North Star and Menominee Casino. In 2018, she had a son with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Kodiak. According to the Crime Lines podcast, who interviewed Caitlin's mother, Caitlin and Kodiak tried to make things work for their son, even when they weren't officially together. For the most part, they were good at co-parenting and got along with each other. By June of 2020, Caitlin and Kodiak were no longer a couple, and Caitlin was dating an older man who her mom knew through family. On June 18th, Michelle reported 22-year-old Caitlin missing to the Menominee Indian Reservation Tribal Police. Michelle told them that she hadn't been able to reach Caitlin since June 16th. Michelle was very worried as Caitlin always stayed in touch, especially because of her two-year-old son. She'd call in the morning or whenever she got home, knowing how concerned her mom was about her safety. Caitlin had a big heart, and she'd never willingly let her mom worry about her. The police started putting together a timeline for Caitlin's last known movements. According to Namus, they determined she left her boyfriends on the night of June 16th at around 10.20 p.m., a bit later, between 10.25 p.m. and 10.30 p.m., someone saw Caitlin walking on County Highway VV near Silver Canoe Road on the Menominee Indian Reservation. She was wearing a gray t-shirt, a black swimsuit top, blue jean shorts, and black flip-flops. Around 15 minutes later, the same person drove by but didn't see Caitlin. The next time Caitlin was seen was around 11 p.m. when a neighbor spotted Caitlin at her Shawno apartment. This timeline told police that Caitlin had to have been picked up by a car when she was in the Highway VV area. There's no way she could have walked to her apartment in such a short period of time. A neighbor saw Caitlin again at 3 a.m., this time with a man and two women. Michelle told the Crime Lines podcast that she didn't know these people very well. They were new friends of Caitlin's. Now, around that same time, Caitlin posted on Facebook that she saw a black SUV parked outside her apartment. Then, according to the Justice for Caitlin Kelly Facebook page, Caitlin left her apartment with a man who the page claimed was a known rapist, stalker, and abuser. Now, I want to note that this information comes only from the Facebook page, and the police have never mentioned this man publicly. Further details are unknown. In the days after Caitlin went missing, 
the tribal police used social media to ask for help in finding her. They urged hunters, campers, boaters, and local residents to stay vigilant in the area and report any strange happenings. The tribal police, along with other departments, searched extensively where Caitlin was last seen. They combed through roads, forests, and bodies of water. They followed up on tips, but unfortunately, they could not locate Caitlin. The Crime Lines podcast mentioned that Kodiak, the father of Caitlin's son, managed to access her Facebook and Gmail accounts, which the police used during their investigation. However, they haven't found her physical phone, and they haven't shared any information about potential phone pings or digital data. Meanwhile, Caitlin's mom, Michelle, and other family members put up flyers across Wisconsin and pleaded with the public for help. Five days after Caitlin was reported missing, Michelle told WBAY Action 2 News, quote, she needs to be home by her family and her baby. This is very unlike her to be gone this long, even like a couple days. I'm just worried. I want her home. I just want to know where she is. On July 22nd, the Menominee Nation offered a $5,000 reward for anyone who could help find Caitlin. Still, no one came forward with information. Then, on March 17, 2021, almost a year after Caitlin disappeared, human remains were discovered on the Menominee Reservation. The specific location hasn't been disclosed to the public. Days later, an autopsy confirmed that these remains belonged to Caitlin Kelly. While the official cause and manner of death have not been made public, many sources have labeled it as a homicide. After the news of Caitlin's death went public, Renee, an activist for missing and murdered indigenous relatives, expressed her sorrow to Fox 11 News, saying, quote, There's another young indigenous daughter not coming home. It's nice that we will know where she will rest for the rest of her life, where her soul will be. But it would be much nicer if she wasn't stolen in the first place. Caitlin's mom, Michelle, spoke to WBAY, expressing her need to understand what happened to Caitlin. She said, quote, I am kind of relieved because I don't have to wonder where she is anymore, but I still want justice and whoever's responsible comes forward or gets caught because that will help in the closure for the family. On June 17th, the Menominee Tribal Police released a statement to mark the one-year anniversary since Caitlin's disappearance. The statement disclosed that her case was still under active investigation by the Tribal Police and the FBI. They urged the public to keep Caitlin and her family in their thoughts and report any information that could aid in the ongoing investigation. In September of 2022, Kodiak's mother shared with the Wintenberg Enterprise that the most painful part of Caitlin's death was hearing her four-year-old son ask for his mom. She also mentioned that she continuously prays for Caitlin's parents to find some peace. Sadly, in March of 2023, Caitlin's mother, Michelle, unexpectedly passed away at the young age of 47. She never found out what happened to her daughter. Now, unfortunately, there are no further updates. The circumstances surrounding Caitlin's disappearance and death remain a mystery, and investigators are still working on this case as we speak. All right, so let's dive into my perspective. And, and this isn't going to be a long one because I feel like we have a lot of the missing pieces to the puzzle. We just need someone out there who knows what happened that night to, to finally come forward. But just for everyone out there, let's recap some of the highlights of this investigation because I feel like they're important. I feel like they really hold the key to this case. We have a pretty good understanding of, of Caitlin's whereabouts that night. We know that she was picked up by someone because she wouldn't have been able to walk to her apartment in that short period of time. And we know that at around 3 a.m., 
she was seen with a man and two women. We also know that she posted something on Facebook about a black SUV, although that could be, it could be a nothing burger. It may have, it just might be a red herring. It could have actually happened, but it may not have anything to do with the case. Um, but back to this gentleman and these two women. Now, as I said on the Facebook page, Justice for Caitlin Kelly, the people there who run that page believe that this individual is a uh, alleged rapist and a known abuser. And that leads me to believe that they have the name of this guy, right? If they know his history, then they know who he is. So if they know who he is, then that means the police know who he is. And here's where I'm at on this one. These two women that were also with this man and with Caitlin at the time, I'm assuming they're still alive. And if they're still alive and we're to presume that whatever happened to Caitlin happened that night, that means that those three individuals or a combination of them were responsible for Caitlin's death. And if we're in a situation where the, the male figure is the main offender, that means those two women know what happened that night, or at least can fill in the blanks as to when they left and it was just this man and Caitlin the rest of the evening. Either way, they know something. And I'm assuming, I'm hoping they've already been spoken to. But if they haven't been spoken to, one investigative tactic, and I've said this before, you want to go after the person who has the least involvement but the most to lose. And what I mean by that is if these two women know what happened that evening, if you go to them and you tie them into this crime and you say, hey, listen, you're going to go down for conspiracy to commit murder if you don't work with us. Because if you're not working with us, you're working against us. And that means that you're, you have more involvement than you want us to know. Do you really want to go to prison for the rest of your life for a crime you didn't commit? And if that person really didn't have anything to do with the crime but might have been present, they're going to be more willing to work with you because they're not the main offender. They didn't actually kill her. And so therefore, they have something to, to offer you that could get them off, or at least with a reduced sentence. Again, if they were, a lot of hypotheticals here, if they were actually involved in the crime at all, it may have been just, it may have been just the presence that they were there and that they may have, I don't know, hidden something or helped him get home. Who knows? But these people know something. And there are people in that community that know them. I'm not saying we want to harass anyone. But if you are friends or acquaintances of these individuals and you're from that area, maybe if you can put a little pressure on them, let them know that there's still an opportunity for them to do the right thing. Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion that if this male individual is involved, part of the reason they may not have come forward at this point with new information is be out of fear. They don't want to end up like Caitlin. We do see that uh, in a lot of investigations that I've covered where you have this indirect witness intimidation where they see what the offender is capable of, they're concerned that law enforcement won't have enough to arrest them, and therefore they don't want to put their lives on the line for that. They're figuring, hey, listen, it's not me. I don't want to be another person, another victim. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and say nothing. And I get it. I understand. We're all human beings. I can understand how self-preservation is a big component to a decision-making process. But I also want you guys to understand that there are services offered by authorities that can protect you, that can put you in a position where you're able to provide information to give closure to Caitlin's family while not putting yourself in jeopardy. And again, I know that's hard, but, it, but if it was easy, everyone would do it. 
And we need someone with courage to come forward and, and make that next step and, and finally bring this case, uh, the answers that, that everyone connected to this case, including Caitlin's son, uh, what they all deserve. And just to recap for everyone listening or, or watching this episode, or maybe someone who's from that area, Caitlin Kelly was last seen around 3 a.m. on June 17th, 2020 in Shawano, Wisconsin. If you have any information, please call the Menominee Tribal Police at 715-799-3881. Now to recap this entire episode, we have obviously two different cases. Um, I want to thank everyone who reached out and obviously asked for me to cover more cases involving Indigenous women. I do recognize that it's a problem that these cases are not covered at the same rate that other cases are covered. You know, I could sit here and say, well, I'm not going to be able to solve that problem. I don't speak on behalf of everyone, you know, all these different media outlets and podcasts and true crime shows. But just because they're not doing their part doesn't mean I shouldn't. And regardless of what type of impact my coverage will have on the case, if I decide to actively not cover them as well, then, I, then I'm also part of the problem. And I'll tell you, I've said it before, I could cover cases every single day for the next 10 years, and I wouldn't even scratch the surface on all the cases out there that do not get the coverage they deserve. It's, it's a really demoralizing fact, but my hope is that maybe by me making a small dent in this massive problem, others will follow suit, both small and large podcasts and media outlets, and maybe down the road, many years from now, this won't be such a big problem anymore and we'll get equal coverage regardless of a victim's background, regardless of their gender, regardless of their nationality, regardless of where they're from, regardless of their socioeconomic status. Everyone deserves to be treated equally regardless of who they are. As always, if you made it to the end of this episode, thank you for staying all the way through. And if you feel inclined, leave a comment down below. Let me know what you think of these cases. And one final thing before I end this episode, it's more of a personal note. Right now it's October 29th. We have Halloween in a couple days and then we have Thanksgiving coming up and then Christmas is right around the corner. I mean, obviously the best time of year, right? But um, with all of that going on, you know, family being the number one priority, couple that with the current things I'm working on with Crime Weekly and traveling for Crime Feed, um, it's, gonna, it's pretty hectic. It's been tough to get these episodes out every week to you. So there may be a few weeks where I don't put out an episode. So please make sure you're following on my personal uh, social media accounts. I think it's at uh, Derek Lavasser is my main page. And then also uh, Detective Perspective, which is D-E-T Perspective. Pretty simple, at D-E-T Perspective on Instagram and Twitter, I believe. So follow me there. And if I'm not going to be able to put out an episode, I will let you guys know on that on those platforms just so you're not hanging around for it. But I'm pretty easy to find. I'm posting on Twitter or Instagram. So finally, I just want to say again, thank you so much for the support. We're going to keep this going. Uh, as I've been saying throughout this whole episode, these cases need to be covered and we're going to do our part to cover them. So as always, stay safe out there and I'll see you soon.